Hello and welcome to Obsession, where we get horribly obsessed, highly obsessed, <laughs> hilariously obsessed with things that other people might find odd. Nothing is too obscure, too creepy or too weird for us to research obsessively. I'm Heidi. And I'm Rebecca. Join us in being obsessed. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hi, Becky. Hello. We're back. Can you believe this is episode 23? No, not really, but I can't believe we got through one episode Never mind a whole season. No, especially (laughs) since last year and this year have been the worst for me in terms of attention span. Yeah, same. Look, I've hardly read any books in that time and for me that's really, really weird. That is. Yeah. That is. So me, I have given myself an unfortunate habit, which is really quite embarrassing, of not being able to read anything more than 140 characters long, like Twitter long, because, Ooh. yeah, I, yeah, bad habit. I'm literally having to train myself to read long articles again. You know what I mean by that? Yes. It happens so easily. Yes. Really easily. And also there is so much happening in the world and my life and I just don't have the headspace for anything too heavy or too thinky. Yeah. I, sort of, I want light at the moment, you know. So, actually, Heidi, do you have any go-to books when life is a little heavy and you just want something non-distressing? Or Yeah, look, this is going to sound really cheesy and sort of a cliche, but Jane Austen. Oh, really? Yeah, Jane Austen is my kind of actually, that makes numbing. Sense. Numbing? Yeah, yeah that kind of numbs me. That's a good word. Yeah. So for me, it's the Little House on the Prairie series. Minute things get too tough, I'm dragging them out to read again. They're, they're really comforting to me when I'm... Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. And um, I think my my favourite childhood comforting books, Roald Dahl, Matilda. Oh, Matilda, yes. Yes. I always loved Matilda. You want to be Matilda. I wanted to be Matilda. Oh, look, doesn't everybody want to be Matilda? <laughs> Who doesn't want to be Matilda? Maybe we all have Matilda abilities and we just haven't, you know, believed in them enough. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Also, uh, there's an Australian author, Robin Klein. I, yeah. I really loved her books when I was growing up. And when I read them again now, they're just as good as, as I remembered them. Do you know, I haven't read them since childhood. I must delve into that. Yeah, yeah. I really related to them for some reason. I, I don't know why. I just related to her style. Yeah. Yeah. So this kind of gets us onto the topic of tonight's podcast. It does. A little bit of a smoother segue today, I think. Yeah, slick. <laughs> slick. Yeah, so when you think of children's stories, a list of fairy tales immediately come to mind. We tend to assume that the fairy tales we grow up hearing are ancient, and some of them are, but some of them just feel ancient because they've become such a part of our own psyches, as well as touchstones of popular culture. It can surprise people that the ugly duckling 
the princess and the pea, the little mermaid and Thumbelina are not part of a long folkloric oral tradition, Mm. but were written by one person in the 19th century. So in case you haven't guessed or read the title of the episode, (laughs) we're going to be talking about Hans Christian Andersen specifically the obsessive friendships and romantic interests that provided him with equal measures of inspiration and torment. One particular incident that really hooked me into this topic was his disastrous visit to the home of British novelist Charles Dickens, which I thought was one of the most hilarious, cringy and also slightly sad true stories of literary history. You know, when you suggested this, Heidi, I had a moment of cognitive dissonance. It's really hard to think of them living at the same time. Mm. Yeah. I had the same feeling when I found out that Mike Pence is 20 years younger than Mick Jagger. (laughs) So (laughs) I know. Can you believe? You're right when you say that his stories feel much older than they are. And I've always thought of him for some reason as being in an earlier century. I never matched Hounds and Charles in the same era, ever. Yeah, same. There's also a weird kind of mythology that's made him this sweet, happy-go-lucky guy who's always surrounded by children. And that's mainly to do with a 1952 musical film that had almost nothing to do with the (laughs) real Hans Christian Andersen. But it did have some great songs. Very plucky performance by Danny Kaye in the title role. So a movie about the real H.C. Andersen wouldn't be a jaunty Hollywood musical It would be more likely to be a mopey, self-indulgent opera in 10 acts (laughs) with lots of very long arias about unrequited love. His detractors, and he did have quite a few, described him as selfish, narcissistic, demanding, and a ruthless and snobby social climber. While his friends did find him to be a warm and loving person, They were often frightened away by his overwhelming neediness and the obsessive nature of his feelings for them. What often began as a delightful friendship often turned into something strange and oppressive. You know how on Twitter they call men who are constantly making comments on women's posts reply guys? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a real-life reply guy. You'd like, one, you'd like one of his comments and he'd be sliding into your DMs and referring to you as his online girlfriend or boyfriend after a day. That is exactly what he would do. And he'd like, he'd like every Instagram post. You know, oh, yes, from, at like 2 o'clock in the morning. At, you know, from eight years ago. Yeah, he'd be one of those. Yes. <laughs> oh, God, yes, he would. Yeah. But you know what? I don't think we're going to trash talk hands today. There was a lot that he did in his personal relationships that was weird and questionable and some things that were downright inappropriate. And I'm certainly not going to excuse those things. But there are certain things that I do admire about his weirdness. Really? That actually surprises me. Yeah, look, not the creepiness. But I do admire people who are fearless about expressing their feelings. 
even if they make me uncomfortable, I kind of respect the directness. And I do like odd people yeah. to an extent. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to someone like Hans Christian Andersen, my instinct isn't to laugh at them, but to kind of want to save them from themselves. Mm-hmm. It's like, the David Brent character in The Office. He brings all the cringiness of himself and puts himself <laughs> in these painful situations that are almost unbearable to watch, but, you know, deep down he just wants to be loved. Sympathetic cringiness I can actually relate to. Yeah. Well, how did such a complex person come to be? Let's take a brief dive into the early years of Little Hans. There are all sort of cliches that come to mind immediately when you read about his life. Real life fairy tale, rags to riches, humble beginnings, all these tired phrases could have been invented solely to describe Anderson's true story. And as he wrote the narrative on his roots, it very well could have been. He was born on the 2nd of April in 1805 in Odense, Denmark. His mother was a washerman. His father was a cobbler and they lived in poverty in a one-bedroom cottage. So fairy tale, isn't it? Yeah. He was very different to the other children in his neighbourhood. He loved to read. His main source of books being the single bookshelf above his father's workbench. He was fascinated by the local theatre and made puppets and sewed dolls' clothes. He was considered so effeminate by the local boys that there is a story that says they tore his clothes off to make sure he wasn't really a girl. If this wasn't enough to make him an outcast, his father was known for being mentally ill and young Hans was taunted for being as mad as his grandfather. Although he did like to make up stories, the talent that stood out most was his glorious soprano voice and he thought that singing would be his ticket out of poverty. He was fiercely confident when it came to his ability as a performer and the wealthy families of Odense began to invite him to sing at their dinner parties. It was in these houses that young Hans got glimpses of the life he wanted for himself and he was determined to be part of what he saw as a higher class of society. His father died when he was 11 and his mother made him take factory jobs and apprenticeships that he was kicked out of within a few days. When his mother remarried, Hans, at the age of 14, decided it was time to leave home. Now, something I've always been told, and you tell me this as well, (laughs) is that I don't know how to sell myself. No, you don't. I don't know how to promote myself. No. No, you actively actively anti-promote yourself. You act. (laughs) Sorry. And look, a lot of artists do have that problem. Yeah, my mum does it too. Yeah. Yeah. But Hans didn't. He went by himself to Copenhagen, a city where he knew no one, and immediately went to the Royal Theatre to ask for a job. Hans was a tall, gawky, and was dressed like a peasant. So the director laughed and showed him the door. One by one, he sought out all of the bigwigs of the theatre world, and they all told him to get lost. That was until he happened upon the composer, Christoph Wise, who was so impressed with the talented teenager that he got him a place at the Royal Choir School and gave him a small scholarship that would enable him to house and feed himself, but only barely, while he studied. 
poverty still dogged hands. But at last he was able to study singing, acting, and even ballet. Then came the tragedy that befalls so many talented boy sopranos. His voice broke, and it was apparent that his adult voice was going to be nothing special. His plan B of being a ballet dancer wasn't going to happen either. He'd grown way too tall and awkward. You know, I can't quite formulate my thoughts here, but a lot of this makes me draw parallels with Florence Foster Jenkins, which we've done a podcast on before. Early nurtured artistic talent thwarted and later cringy lack of awareness behaviour. But anyway, go on, Heidi. (laughs) Sorry. So it was then that Hans remembered something else he liked doing, writing. Through a series of fortunate events, Hans came into contact with the financial director of the Royal Theatre, Jonas Collin. Impressed by his scripts, Jonas Collin decided to become the patron of this odd-looking 17-year-old, and he got the King of Denmark, of all people, to provide funding for Hans to go to, to get the grammar school education that Colin decided was needed if Hans was to become a writer. Now, this sounds great, but don't forget that Hans was 17 at the time and starting high school with 13 and 14-year-olds. That's not going to be a great situation to be in at that age. Do you know, I often have nightmares like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people do. It's actually a very common nightmare. So I find out I didn't actually pass the subject in high school and I have to go back and do it again as an adult. I dream about that all the time. Mm. So Hans may have been only 17, but the difference between a 13-year-old and a 17-year-old is just so vast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was socially awkward. And even though he was grateful for the opportunity, he also felt humiliated. It didn't help that the headmaster was a cruel and vicious man who just loved destroying the self-esteem of his students. He hated creativity and imagination. So Hans was everything he despised. It's amazing that Hans stayed there till he was 21. Imagine being in high school at 21 in those circumstances. But he didn't feel like he had a choice. The king was paying his tuition and his patron, Jonas Colin, was determined that he would stay and graduate. Eventually, Colin did pull Hans Christian out of school when he realised the extent of the mistreatment. But the young man's psyche was almost irreparably damaged. Sadly, he also had a kind of arrested development from being an adult in a class full of teenagers and being treated like a teenager himself for so long. The Colin family provided him with financial support, but they also contributed to his wounds. He had a place at the family's table, but he was still the poverty-stricken son of a washerwoman, and he would never be their equal. Also at that family table was one of Jonas's sons, Edvard, one of Hans' first obsessions and possibly the love of his life. Edvard was practical, sensible and unromantic in nature, the complete opposite of Hans, and their lifelong friendship would be strained many times by Hans' expectations. At one point, Hans turned his affections towards Edvard's sister, Louisa, but she wasn't interested. 
and his attentions to her seemed to be a reaction to Edvard's aloofness. His feelings towards Edvard have often been debated by biographers and historians, with some saying it was considered quite normal for men to write in romantic language to their male friends. But the more popular opinion seems to be that Hans's letters to Edvard are most certainly love letters. Oh, yeah. And I, I would agree. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In one letter he wrote... I languish for you as for a pretty Calabrian wench. My sentiments for you are those of a woman. The femininity of my nature and our friendship must remain a mystery. Mm. Edvard didn't feel the same way. Years later, he wrote in his memoir, I found myself unable to respond to this love and this caused the author much suffering. Edvard got engaged to a woman named Henrietta and Hans began to interfere in their lives in in an attempt to destroy their relationship. He failed to stop the marriage, but he did almost destroy his friendship with Edvard. When Edvard referred to Hans as his worthy friend, Hans shot back with, why do you call me your worthy friend? I don't want to be worthy. That is the most insipid, boring word you could Mm. use. Any fool could be called worthy. I have hotter blood than you and half of Copenhagen. See, that's not romanticism. That's love. That's that's extreme love. Yeah. It's in letters like those you can see the overwhelming neediness of Hans and also the arrested development. It sounds like a teenager having a tantrum. In the last couple of years, a number of articles have popped up with the, I see it as entirely plausible theory that that The Little Mermaid was a love letter to Edvard. Mm. Gabrielle Below wrote a touching analysis of the story for lithub.com. In her article, Below writes, The Little Mermaid then becomes more than a memorable fable. It was his attempt to translate his frustrated queer desires into the language of a fantastical story, into a fragment of dream. It was, encrypt- it was an encrypted but plain enough look into the queer love he was never able to find for himself. And I'll just remind you that The Little Mermaid we're talking about here isn't the watered retelling watered down Mm. retelling you've probably read as a child no no nor is it any cartoon version you've ever seen the original version of the little mermaid was brutally sad and tragic and it's possible that you only think you know it in exchange for human form the little mermaid doesn't only lose her voice she also has her tongue cut out She gains legs, but she feels as though her feet are being cut by glass and knives as she walks. She doesn't marry the prince. She watches him marry his true love. Then she dissolves into sea foam. It's not exactly Disney, is it? No, it's not. (laughs) But you know what? I prefer it so much more to Disney. Oh, yeah. Fairy tales are good until Disney sweetens them up. 
Oh, yes. And I just found that interpretation of The Little Mermaid made it so much more heartbreaking. Oh, God, yes. I mean, when you think about it, um, a gay man or bisexual man, I'm pretty sure he would have been perhaps bisexual. Yeah, I would have, I would have said he was homosexual who just, yeah, but anyway. Well, I mean, we'll never fully know, I suppose. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a bisexual or gay person, you know, back in those days, they didn't have a voice. Oh. And, and even if Edvard had loved him back, it's a love that they would never have been able to speak about. No. They, they couldn't have gotten married. They couldn't have lived together openly. No. And, and that metaphor of having your tongue cut out or having to walk on glass and knives uh, to live in a certain way, it's, it, you know, it's just enough to rip your heart out, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it wasn't just this time, although it was the most impressionable love of his life, for sure. Hans did fall in love countless times. But one of his more famous unrequited loves was for the great Swedish soprano Jenny Lind. Now, you might know the name Jenny Lind from the movie The Greatest Showman, where she's portrayed as a temptress who causes P.T. Barnum to stray from his wife. This is not based on reality at all. Musicals never are. (laughs) (laughs) as Ginny Lind could barely tolerate P.T. Barnum and the schedule he gave her caused her such performance burnout that she left show business to be a singing professor. It is true, however, that she was megastar of her time and she was one of the completely unattainable women that Hans would obsess over during his life. Mm-hmm. He wrote, Through Ginny Lind, I first became sensible of the holiness there is in art. No books, no men have had a better or more ennobling influence on me as a poet. One of his most famous fairy tales, The Nightingale, was inspired by Lind, and she became known as the Swedish Nightingale for the rest of her career. In true Hans Christian Andersen style, he met her, fell in love immediately, and proposed a few weeks later. (laughs) Of Of course, he was too shy to ask her outright, but he shoved the letter of proposal into her hand as she was boarding a train. Now, keep in mind that she was around 20 and he was around 40 and he was this guy that she'd met a few weeks previously and had been polite to. We all understand that scenario. We do. (laughs) We do. And, well, she wasn't that impressed. She sent him a letter with what the young people of today would call the ultimate friend zone. She wrote, farewell, God bless, and protect my brother is the sincerest wish of his affectionate sister, Jenny. I mean, that's not friend zone. That's sibling zone. (laughs) (laughs) And there's this theory that the Snow Queen was also about Lind, as in the Snow Queen that puts a shard of ice into the young boy's heart. Yeah, look, I don't know if I believe that. And I also don't know if I find his behaviour endearing and nerdy or worrying. In our day and age, extremely worrying. But if you give it the context of the romantic romantic era, no, still pretty pretty nerdy and worrying. Well, he wasn't only a suffocating romantic interest, he was also a suffocating friend. Ah. Incidentally, Hans spent much of his life living with friends in rented rooms. 
even after he became successful and financially stable enough to buy a house. He had this need to be an eternal house guest. I don't know if it was part of his codependent nature or if poverty had traumatised him into always living as though he were homeless. But he just expected that he would be able to stay with his friends for long stretches of time. Anyway, there was the time he stayed with Charles Dickens and sucked the life out of the entire family. Yes, so I had no idea of this story until you told me, Heidi, and everyone needs to hear this story. Okay, so Hans was a massive fanboy of Dickens. They did meet in 1847 and they did get along. They had a lot in common. They both had childhoods full of hardship. They'd both been child factory workers and they'd both had theatre backgrounds. So they got along and Hans got to tell Charlie how much he loved his work and gush over him and that was all good. So in the nine years until they saw each other again, Hans sends him regular fan mail and Dickens is polite enough and one day he sends a letter that has one of those do stay with us next time you're in England, <laughs> you know, throw away comments that nobody really yeah. means. But Hans reads this and basically says, great, I'm on the next boat. <laughs> um, what he actually wrote was, my visit is for you alone. Above all, Always leave me a small corner of your heart. Oh, see, that would have had me hiding inside with the curtains drawn and the lights turned out. <laughs> and you know what? Um, something else I read was that he actually contacted the press before accepting the, the yeah. you know, invitation from Dickens. And so it was in the paper that oh. he was going to visit Charles Dickens before oh. Dickens knew about it. So, uh. oh. Oh. <laughs> so this was the absolute worst time for the Dickens family to have any kind of house guest. It was 1857 and Dickens was rehearsing for, for a role in a Wilkie Collins play. He was extremely stressed about his return to acting. Also, he'd been having an affair with his 18-year-old co-star. He'd been planning to leave his wife for her around this time, but this now had to be postponed until the visit was over. So it was basically really awkward. Really? Yeah. Really awkward? Yeah. It was made even more awkward by the fact that Hans decided that the planned two-week stay was going to actually be five weeks. Oh, God, that's annoying. So the first unusual thing that Hans did was to announce that it was a Danish custom for a son of the family to shave the guest every morning. The eldest Dickens boy went, no way, I'm not doing that. <laughs> And Charles had to arrange for Hans to take the carriage to a barber's appointment every morning of his stay. 
Look, I have no idea if that actually was a Danish custom or if Hans was just really spoilt by his friends, but the Dickens family were a bit creeped out. See, I am with the Dickens family. I think it's really creepy and somehow slightly sexual, getting a young boy to shave you like that first thing in the morning. Come on. I I don't know. I don't know if I interpreted it it as sexual, but it's weird. It's weird. Sorry, Hans, it's weird. (laughs) Super weird. Yeah. So... It's the opening night of the Wilkie Collins play that Dickens is starring in. And Queen Victoria is in the audience as well as a lot of other famous people. And our darling Hans becomes so emotional during Dickens' performance that his sobs were audible. Oh, God. (laughs) I just cringe this entire podcast. (laughs) So after spending the show distracting Everyone with his extra loud crying. Hans descended into a dark mood because he wasn't being recognised enough at the after party. So narcissistic. It was all about him. Yeah. Yeah, so he annoyed every single member of the Dickens household at all times oblivious to their reactions. He had to do crafting projects with paper. And he was apparently quite brilliant at cutting out patterns, but he always left a big mess of little paper bits all over the floor. He'd also pick flowers in the woods and make daisy chains. He annoyed Wilkie Collins by putting daisy chains all over his hat when he wasn't looking. And Collins had no idea why everyone was pointing and laughing at him on the way home. Those things, I think, are just a bit quirky and cute. Mm. Mm. But the house was really stressed out. I'm sure that Mrs. Dickens and the kids could sense that Charles had something going on. And it would have been such a tense environment. And here's hands doing crafts and tormenting people with flowers. Okay, so to be fair... It is possible to say it gets a step beyond quirky and cute if he was demonstrating other weirdness that can be disturbing. So, for example, right, Heidi, an old man smiles at you and picks you a flower and walks off, right? Uh, That's quirky and cute. Yeah. If he walks all the way to your home and stands outside at midnight holding it smiling outside, it's creepy, (laughs) right? Yes. Context is everything. So I get bothered and irritated by Hans just by reading about him and I would have hated to have been in his circle because I'd be wanting to draw circles in the air shouting, boundaries, boundaries. I don't know. I, I, I have the same instinctive feeling that some of his friends, well, acquaintances did, wanting to recall for him, but, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they were just mean because he was another, but I don't know. I It creeps me, Heidi. It creeps me. Look, it creeps me out too. And I think because his stories mean so much to me, I do have a kind of knee-jerk reaction where I want to stand up for him Okay, a little bit. But, yeah, and I know that's not really the right way to look at things. No, 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 no. I'm I'm not saying that. I am saying, though, having known you for an incredibly long time now, It actually really surprises me because I would have thought that someone like Hans, knowing other people 
uh, in our circle or who we've known or who you've known um, who demonstrate harms like behaviour actually really can make you a little bit disturbed inside? Oh, look, I would not have wanted to be his friend at all. No. No, no. I would have stayed far, far, far away from him. <laughs> far away. Far away but from him. But it's that old thing again, which we've delved into so many times in this podcast and in our private conversations, when you, uh, when someone uh, proves themselves, an artist or a, or a creator um, proves themselves to be quite reprehensible or to have done bad things, I'm not saying that he did, mm. but um, we question, well, are we still allowed to like their art? Are we still allowed to, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's a bit of that. You, you don't have to like... Uh, generically, you do not have to like um, Hans to still love his, you know, work. Well, do you know what? I feel the same way about him as I do about Vincent van Gogh. Yes, I know that's not how you pronounce his name before everybody jumps on me, oh, but whatever. I, I'll, I'll never be able to pronounce his name. I'm not Dutch. But he, he, <laughs> reminds, me, he reminds me a bit of him in a way in that, you know, on one hand – we feel so sad for him because he needed to be loved so much and, you know, he was so tormented and sad. But at the same time, some of his behaviour was just so possessive and strange and just completely unacceptable. Mm. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, so back to what we were talking about before we started getting, you know, ponderous. <laughs> so <laughs> Hans also used to like to make things a little bit dramatic. That's not surprising. <laughs> he'd, <laughs> he'd read a negative re- review of something he had written and instead of being a bit disappointed, he would throw himself on the front lawn and sob hysterically, I mean hysterically in front of the neighbours. He was so scared of pickpockets that he felt if he felt even slightly uneasy in a cab, he would start stuffing the contents of his pockets into his boots, including scissors and pen knives and books. Hans may have been socially awkward and selfish. However, Dickens was outright unkind about him behind his back. He wrote to a friend that Anderson spoke French like Peter the Wild Boy and English like the deaf and dumb school. His translatress appears to make out that he can't speak Danish either. Oh, so That's cruel. It, it is. It is. So Hans wept copious tears on the day of his departure. Of course he did. But do you know who wasn't crying? Everyone else. <laughs> Dickens went straight to the guest room and wrote on the mirror, Hans Andersen slept in this room for five weeks, which seemed to the family ages. The worst faux pas, however, however, happened when Hans got back to Denmark. Dickens had separated from his wife to great public scandal, and he was trying to salvage his reputation. Hans had written an account of his visit to England and it said particularly wonderful things about Mrs. Dickens. And by the time the article was published in England, Dickens had already left her, which was awkward. 
<laughs> to say the least. Oh, well, serves Dickens right. It always seems to me that although Hans was cringy in awkwardness affections, they, I don't think they were based on any overt nastiness, do you? No, no, I don't think just, so. I think he no, was just, just he was clueless and self-absorbed. Like uh, like Florence Foster Jenkins. Yes. I don't think she was particularly unkind. I don't get that impression from her. Oh. Yeah, she kind of was. Actually, no, yeah. she was. I, yeah, as soon as I said that, I thought, no. All right. Anyway, well, maybe so was Hans without us knowing. I don't yeah. know. But Dickens was, you know, two-faced, mocked him behind his back, and I think that's a bit nasty. Look, I don't think either of these men come across as particularly great guys. No, in this story. No. Although, do you know, I keep thinking, can you imagine the family the minute they put him on no, 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 the train or whatever they put him on? Oh, can you imagine oh. that sense of relief when you come back to the house? It's like, oh, <laughs> they would have, if they would have seen the carriage or train or whatever go off and they would have gone, woo! <laughs> pretty much. And pretty much. They probably would have stood there at the station for the next 10 minutes, making sure he didn't come. Sure, back. he'd really come. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I could just picture Hans running back going, I couldn't leave. I couldn't leave. <laughs> you could imagine oh, him turning up at the door that night and saying, I had to get off the train and walk all the way back here because I, I just can't live without this family. <laughs> See, we, we jest, but that's the kind of thing that Hans would have done. Oh, gosh, it was. It really was. He was just so complex. So, so even when we were doing this podcast, Heidi, my feelings towards Hans kept changing. Oh, and I kept trying to be sympathetic to him. So at the end of this, where are you at with him? Are you sympathetic or are you kind of just... Oh. Look, I'm undecided. Oh, I mean, I his, think I mean, his obsessions and the way he conducted his relationships obviously had to do with a lot of psychological wounds. And so, oh yeah, for sure, his childhood wasn't as romantic as you would imagine no, or, or how no, he portrayed. No, I mean, he wrote an autobiography called, you know, A Fairy Tale of My Life. And yeah. in it, he he was just so romantic about his childhood and about his parents. Um, yeah. But in actual yeah. fact, um, there was a lot of shame there. Um, Absolutely. There, was a, there, was, there were a lot of um, mental health issues in his family. And also yep. his mother apparently did uh, pick up some extra money in the brothel in town and so did his oh, half-sister. Really? And he didn't speak very oh, much about his half-sister. And I think what? that's where a lot of um, his shame about sex came from because yeah. he did have an aversion um, to being touched. So mm. he did have this obsessive it, love of people, but when it came down to it, he didn't really want a physical relationship and he was engaged for a short time to a woman who did reciprocate his feelings, but he did um, pull out of the engagement at the last minute. He just couldn't deal with the idea of having something that was real and wasn't a fantasy. 
Mm, it kind of paints a picture of his childhood a bit, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, sadly. Very, very sadly. Yeah, it does. So, and, and so now I've switched again. <laughs> you know, usually whenever we do a podcast, I have very fixed views or feelings, you know, about the subject. But this time, I don't know. Uh, do you know what? He was such a mystery and so much of what we know about him, like Vincent van Gogh, it's so much of it is just mythology. Mm-hmm. It's it's just so hard to know what to believe. But having said that, I would have loved to have seen a reality TV show like Big Brother with <laughs> with Hans Christian Andersen and Charles Dickens <laughs> in the same house. I just, I would have loved that. And I would have loved the diary room. Like, well, Hans comes <laughs> to the diary room and then he goes into the diary room. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is the happiest day of my life. I can't believe my best friend Charles is here and I can't believe we get to be together. And, oh, my God, here's my BFF. I love him forever. <laughs> and then Charles to the diary room. I can't stand this. I cannot stand this. I have to get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> I got nowhere to go from that. I reckon that's a good way for us to end, <laughs> Heidi. What do you think? I think so too. I think we have to know when to let go, which is something that happens. We do. We have know. to let go of this. We have to let go of this podcast now. <laughs> Let's not cringe everybody else out by keep going on and on. <laughs> I hope that you have um, a lovely week and I hope that you're, if you're in Australia, you're not too battered by some of the weather that's happening, especially in New South Wales. I hope you keep, keep safe and lots of love to you. And we will see you next week. Take care. Take care.